Welcome to the Cotton Specialist Corner Podcast. I'm Steve Brown, Extension Agronomist at Auburn University. And with me today is Keith Edmondson from NC State, Camp Han from University of Georgia, Brian Paralisi from Mississippi State, and Randy Norton from the University of Arizona. Our topic today is how to think about plant growth regulators in cotton. And PICS, as everybody knows, our PGR in cotton mepiquot chloride was introduced as a plant growth regulator in cotton around 1980 by BASF. And over the past 40 years, it has evolved in its use patterns. And I'm sure usage varies significantly across the U.S. cotton belt. And with our guests here today, we have a tremendous variation in growth pattern. And so it'll be very interesting to hear how they think about how they manage the crop with picks and mepiquot and so forth. So one other point to make is when the product was first introduced at around 1980, my recollection is that it costs somewhere around 90 to slightly over $100 per gallon. At price probably had some effect on rate, but in today's world, a gallon of generic mepiquot probably cost around $10. So it's so very different from what it was originally. So one other point I'll make before we launch into our discussion, the early label focused, and it still is present on current labels, but the early treatment revolved around cotton that was 20 to 30 inches tall and approaching first bloom. Soon thereafter its introduction, the low-rate multiple application approach was introduced on the label. But again, over 40 years, there's so many different use patterns. In fact, I'll say in grower meetings that if there's 40 people in the room, there's 86 ways that farmers think about how to use pigs. So Let's start in the north and we'll go towards the west. Just very simply, what do you see as the greatest value of PGRs in cotton for your particular growing environment? So, Keith, we'll start with you in North Carolina. Okay. So, I think, you know, to control height, to make it easier to pick, especially in our coastal areas that tend to get more rank, and it can make the crop earlier. And that can be pretty valuable especially on some of the cotton you're going to pick first because that earliness disappears after a week or two. You know, so if you're not ready to harvest it and capture that earliness, that earliness may not count or if you don't have late planted cotton. So earliness and height control is the big thing for us. How about for you, Camp, in Georgia, in the lower southeast? I'd say similar things. I mean, of course, you want to keep the cotton where, you know, a regular cotton picker can get it, right? And so it's got to be a certain height that the picker bars can get in there and efficiently pick that crop. And then also earliness with respect to a late planted crop is a big deal for us as well, because a lot of our crop does get planted in June. One other thing that I've seen some data on, and I believe it's out of Auburn, Dr. Brown, but you know, being a little more aggressive with your picks, increases airflow through the canopy, can potentially help with some foliar disease issues. Some people argue that it could help with bull rot. I have not seen that, but apparently some people have. So really it's about height and then earliness. And then for us, we get a little bit of help with foliar diseases if, you know, we're aggressive on our picks and increase airflow through the canopy. Now, I thought earliness was a dirty word in Georgia. 
Now, earliness on our late planted crop. All right. How about for the Mississippi Delta? Brian, give us some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, it's a lot of the same thing, you know, more of a height control than earliness. I mean, there's probably some earliness to be gained, but our environment can be so different. I mean, we could be really wet, really dry. You know, we had hail this year, seemed like in violent storms, but just managing the plant height, I mean, we could have a dry spell and, you know, where you're kind of reluctant to apply picks and then it turned wet July and August and then you can't stop it. So just having that tool in your toolbox to manage plant height, you know, and every year is a little bit different. It kind of reminds me of defoliation, you know, for us anyway, you can't really base it off last year. All right, Randy, I think about Arizona as growing cotton in a greenhouse or a hothouse, but maybe it's not that simple. But you give us your perspective on the biggest benefits of PGRs in cotton. So, you know, in the West, we've got a pretty high input crop, a lot of irrigation, a lot of fertilization. We're really pushing the crop very hard across the desert southwest. So PIX is a very important tool for our growers. I'll echo what everyone else has said. I mean, height control maintaining that vegetative reproductive balance is critical. You know, oftentimes if you've got a good fruit load, what we've learned is that crop will hold itself back, you know, but if you have anything interrupting that fruit load or the development of that fruit, you have gaps in the fruiting cycle. And we'll see issues in Arizona where we have heat stress and we'll lose a whole strata of fruit from that heat stress event. Growers really need to be aware of the potential of that crop to just take off and get very rank. And so managing using kind of a feedback approach is what we've always advocated for growers to use is go out and look at the crop, measure it, you know, and make decisions based on what the crop's doing. But height control is our primary reason for using it and maintaining that vegetative reproductive balance. Now, in some areas of the state where we have people that are double cropping, they're planting cotton behind wheat. It might not be planted till the end of May, the 1st of June. For us, that's extremely late. So they really use a very aggressive approach with PGRs because late planted cotton in Arizona tends to get ranked really quick and they'll hit it hard and they'll hit it early with PGRs. And then they'll do the same thing at the end of the season, basically to try to shut it down. So those are the reasons behind using it. Again, you know, making informed decisions, I think is critical when using PGRs and not just doing it based on a calendar day approach, but doing it based on what's actually happening in the field. All right, Randy brought up a good point, and we'll go back to the Northeast, to North Carolina. In terms of that decision box, what things are in that box that give growers direction and cause to do this or to do that? So what do you figure are the big picture factors that influence treatment decisions? Keith, we'll start with you. Okay, so when I first came to North Carolina, there were a lot of people looking at height to node ratio. But that includes a lot of old information. You may have big internodes lower on the plant or smaller that really have nothing to do with current growing conditions. So we basically recommend looking at the internode below the uppermost fully expanded leaf, so like the fourth leaf. And for us, we're generally not growing so fast, you know, around first square, but looking at between first square and early bloom, so nine to 10 node stage to start looking at it and let the plant tell you if you need it and think about what the weather predictions are. Do you make adjustments based on field fertility, irrigation, or lack thereof, and weather forecast? How do you factor those things into the decision? So we have one system that's based pretty much on the internode length. Typically for us, we recommend two and a half inches 
in most of our growing area. But now if you're down at the coast and you need to really be on top of it more, like maybe you would be in South Georgia or South Alabama, you know, we recommend maybe looking at two and a quarter or maybe even two inches on that internode. Champ, what are some of the factors that go into your decision process there in Georgia? Yeah, so very similar to Keith. I mean, I'll tell folks to go check the length of that fourth to fifth internode and see how the crop is growing currently. Some of the things that I think of whenever I get a call from county agents about growth regulator, the questions that I'm asking are dry land or irrigated, which we're about 50-50 in Georgia. To me, that and the weather forecast play a big role. Variety, of course, is a question that I'm going to ask every grower, regardless of if it's a question about growth regulator or not. I want to know what variety it is. And then sometimes I'll ask about fertility. You know, there's times that I think that that matters and times that I think that it doesn't. I've done some work with Dr. Harris over here and we've, you know, put on 200 units of nitrogen and been able to fairly easily control that crop on the pig's label. You know, that's kind of unique and that kind of plays into some things I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But definitely looking at dry land versus irrigated variety, potentially fertility and the field history as well in terms of how we're going to make decisions. And even this past week, I got a call, I believe it was early in the week from a county agent. And he was like, hey, it's fixing to rain every day. We don't know when we're going to get back in the field. Should we hit it ahead of this? That's a really good question. I think in some situations that might have been warranted. I asked about the varieties. One of the varieties was a little easier to rein in. And so I said, hey, let that one wait and then hit this other one that's a little more aggressive. And that's kind of, you know, the way that I'm making these decisions. All right, Brian, in the Delta, how do you approach the decision? What all goes into the process? You know, we're going to look at that fourth node and we recommend two to three inches. So, you know, if we stand on top of it early or, you know, get ahead of the game, which I prefer, I'd call that a proactive scenario where you're just kind of keeping up with it. But obviously environments can change or you might be behind a little bit and you have those bigger gaps. I call that more of a reactive situation. And from that point to Camp's point, I'm going to look at the varietal growth habit, you know, as much information as I can find about that. And then the vegetative potential, which would be, you know, is it irrigated, dry? you know, has it been wet? And then Camp mentioned field history. I guess by that, a lot of the growers here will tell me, you know, it's really, for lack of a better word, strong ground, or, you know, maybe it's the opposite of that. So, you know, just taking all those factors and try to come up with an informed decision just to try to stay on the proactive side. And then, you know, one last thing, what I've noticed is a lot of times people will tell me, we know last year I put out so much and I couldn't get it to grow or the opposite. Anyway, I just want to make sure you're making decisions on this year based on those factors. Yeah, that's a great point. How we should have managed last year's crop may give us some guidance on this year, but it shouldn't altogether determine it because each year, growth-wise, temperature, so forth, moisture, rainfall, and sometimes variety is very different. So, yeah, it's a year-to-year thing. How about in the far west, Randy? I appreciate that point that Brian made. You emphasize, you know, every year is different. You really have to be looking at the crop. I think, you know, the feedback approach, as I said earlier, you know, looking at internode distance, I always tell growers, you go down four or five nodes, and if you can fit three fingers in between that internode, then you're getting leggy and you probably need to be looking at some growth control. 
So we do advocate looking at trends in height to node ratios and also looking at height to node ratios of the top five nodes, which gives you kind of a more accurate account of what's actually happening right then. I always encourage growers to look at fruit load. You know, as I said earlier, that fruit load has a tremendous ability to keep growth in check. And if you've got a good fruit load, you might not need to put on a PGR application. We actually have seen in some of the trials that we've done, a lot of this work was actually done back in the 90s. A lot of it was done by Silvertooth and myself. We actually saw it in some places in some trials where we reduced node number with PGR applications. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely cause yourself issues and even reduce yield in situations if you're not real careful about how you're using it. So our recommendations are obviously with irrigation, right prior to an irrigation, we can have a crop that's fairly water stressed. I never recommend for a grower to put on a PGR application right ahead of an irrigation. And depending on the variety, you can actually shut it down if you're not careful. So non-stress conditions, we encourage them to apply it. You know, as soon as they can get in the field after an irrigation, put your PICS application on. But try not to do it when the crop is stressed because it has a more pronounced effect on growth reduction. Those are some of the things we encourage growers to look at. We call all the things that we've talked about mitigating factors, and we have some charts to help growers think about these things. But certainly fruit load, we look at fruit load, moisture, stress, field history, variety. We look at all those things. But we have a little different deal with fruit load. You know, if you have something, a lot of times for us, it may be dry weather, but it may be plant bugs or whatever, where you've got lower fruit load and you don't have enough fruit load to stop the plant by itself. If we were irrigated, I would say, yeah, get some picks on that cotton. But, you know, we don't want to jeopardize putting a fruiting branch on like Randy sort of talked about, because that could be very important. So fruit load certainly goes into it. And the other thing that nobody talked about that we really emphasize is, you know, we typically see, unless it's a drought year, we typically see about a week or 10 days worth of earliness out of it. But we've done research to show that, you know, it might be where you use picks might be ready to pick on September 15th. But if you didn't use picks, you could pick it on the 21st or 25th or something, you'd be able to pick it and you wouldn't change yields. So to think about also your harvest schedule. You know, is this going to get my pickers in the field earlier? You know, the earlier you can get those pickers in the field, you can pick more hours per day early in the harvest season than you can later in the harvest season. So gaining a week in the front might save you a couple of weeks in the back. That's a really good point, Keith, because, you know, particularly these growers in Arizona that are double cropping, you know, that's critical for them. And so those late season picks applications that they'll put on, and oftentimes they'll put them on just prior to cutout. Because in Arizona, we can end up with a top crop if you allow it to continue to grow. And they're doing that to try to mitigate that to enhance earliness, just like you say, to be able to get into the field and get the crop out. Those are really good points. All right. Now, I want you to do something that may be impossible, but in your region, give some thought and some expression to what we might consider standard or common approaches. And I would say, look at timing and then rates, initial rates, and then follow-up applications. So talk about those just from a general approach that you might consider for your location. And we'll again, start with Keith in North Carolina. We have two systems we recommend. We also have some guidelines for a low-rate multiple, but almost nobody uses it. Our cotton is usually struggling there at Pinhead Square, and you know it's pretty obvious it doesn't need any picks. So What we recommend is that people own these fields with some mitigating factors. So you're going to pick it first. 
or you'd think you might pick it first, or it has a history of rank growth, is to get out there at that nine to 10 leaf stage and start getting some picks on that cotton, you know, if the conditions warrant it. And then evaluate that cotton again at early bloom and put an additional treatment out then if needed. And then on portion of your cotton, maybe you can get by with only an early bloom. The risk to doing that on all your acreage is that if you get into a rainy period at early bloom, you can get delayed to the point where you're not going to be able to affect the earliness. You're going to have a hard time with even controlling plant height as much. So we recommend maybe a third to half, maybe even all at that first application, nine to 10 node, depending on conditions, and then follow up and see if you still need some at early bloom. And we have a chart that recommends the rate based on plant height. And based on for early bloom application, have you already got some picks in that plant? Would your guys bump up against the maximum use rate, label rate per year in a lot of situations? Not if they start early enough. And that's the problem. A lot of them don't get started early enough because our fields are very variable. They're waiting on the sorry cotton to catch up with the good cotton. And sometimes those guys, you know, they want to shrink their cotton. They're too late to really do much about height control or earliness. And sometimes they're bumping up trying to really play catch up. Camp, speak for the lower southeast. Yeah, so I think that a lot of our guys' approach is similar to what Keith talked about. Of course, there's a lot of variability you know, I walked a field with a guy last year that told me that he started with a pint whenever the cotton was, you know, a foot to a foot and a half tall, and he'd hit it every week until it got where he wanted it, and then he'd stop, and he would increase the rate with each application. And I mean, his cotton was beautiful; it was good cotton, and so couldn't argue with him about it. And then there's people around here that really like a pinhead square application. I'm not a big fan of that myself, but, you know, there's people that really prefer that. But, you know, kind of like Keith was saying, at about the 8 to 10 leaf stage, I'd start looking really hard, particularly on some of our more aggressive varieties, putting some out there. But really, I would say standard is, you know, first bloom, peak bloom, you're putting some out on any given field in the state of Georgia. As long as it's not like a dry land field that's stressed or anything like that, you're probably putting some out at first bloom and peak bloom as long as you can get in the field. I will say for much of the lower southeast, in Alabama at least, a lot of our folks are going to go somewhere in the mid-square to before first bloom. And some in the Gulf Coast region who have such excessive Mm -hmm. rainfall they're going to go real early. They're going to go on that pinhead square. But a lot of people are going to go, again, mid-square to just prior to first bloom. But we got a lot of situations where we can see weather stresses and we don't have great irrigation in many areas. So we're always looking at the weather and we're going to adjust accordingly based on that. Another thing that I would say is, you know, on some of our late April, early May cotton, I wouldn't want to do a pinhead square application. But on some of our June planted cotton, yeah, we're going to do something like that and try to be a little bit more aggressive on that front end. And again, that's got to do with trying to beat a early frost or something like that. You know, that's really kind of where my mind goes with that. But on some of our early to mid-May planted cotton, I err on the side of passiveness, of being a little more reactive 
in some of those situations, because I've seen some of the situations like Randy's talking about where you can reduce yield with it too. So I am not an aggressive person when it comes to picks. I bet the Mississippi Delta is aggressive. You're going to be a little more aggressive, but there's still some guys that take a more passive approach. But by and large, we're going to start eight to 10 node cotton, putting out lower rates, you know, at the pinhead square timing. And we'll, you know, the first bloom, mid bloom, and some of those really aggressive varieties where the vegetative potential is so much higher, you know, we're going to be using maximum rates, you know, oftentimes just trying to keep it down. And we'll see that later in the season, especially if there's some nitrogen under there that it's tapping into and it's just trying to keep it from, you know, running away from you. It's very similar to what previous guys were saying outside of the fact that I've just noticed that a lot of times we can just have a lot of late season horsepower, you know, we're trying to control. It's your eight to 10 node applications. What kind of rates are you thinking about in that situation? It's going to be on the low side. I'd say about 10 ounces is what we typically do on a lot of our research plots. And a lot of the growers are in that, you know, 10 ounce, maybe 12. If it's 10 to 12 node cotton and they couldn't get out at eight, you know, which eight would be on the very early side of, you know, an application. You know, and most of the times I'd say it's a little past eight. You might be saying eight, but it's probably nine or ten no cotton. All right, Randy from the West. Well, so I'd be hard pressed to come up with a standard. There's so much variability in how it's used. I'm not aware of many growers that are doing any low rate type applications early. Most everything, you know, growers are looking at that first bloom stage. And most of them, you know, your comment about bumping up against the label maximum label for the entire year. We do. I mean, we have growers that are maxing the label out. So oftentimes when they're putting an application out, they're not going any less than what they can legally go in a single application. In 2020 is a perfect example. 2020 was an extremely high level heat stress year for us. And we had growers that really just couldn't control growth. We lost so much fruit and the crop was just out of control. And so they were definitely hitting it every time they're going through the field with anything. They had a full label rate of picks just because of the growth potential. And we see that with Pima as well. So, you know, Pima's, it's kind of a niche crop for us in Arizona, but there's still a significant amount of that acreage. And it's a very aggressive growing plant. That kind of gets back to the comments that have been made here about the variety selection. These guys need to be very aggressive when they're looking at the Pima because it can grow very strong. Again, you know, first flower and typically maximum rates that they can go out with a single application. Does anyone have experience in research with variable rate applications? You know, funny you bring that up, Steve. I had a grower one time that came to me that said when he was running through the field, this is probably the lowest tech variable rate application out there. He was running through the field and whenever the cotton was hitting the toolbar on the cultivator, he'd turn his picks on. And if it was below that, he wouldn't turn it on. It's pretty low tech, but it's probably pretty effective. We do have growers that will spot treat fields. With irrigation, oftentimes you'll see the bottom ends of fields where the water sometimes ponds. Sometimes you'll have more growth and they'll go in and spot treat fields. So yeah, there is more and more of that being looked at in Arizona. Yeah. I call that precision agriculture. Yeah. We certainly have that low tech in a lot of our fields too. You know, the problem is your boom width's so wide that, you know, it's hard to be real precise with it. It does make sense for a producer to cut on and off based on low areas of the field or extremely sandy areas of the field, things like that. And 
I also am aware of some drone technology that people are looking at to get a little more sophistication in that. But if you can do it from the high boy seat or from the tractor seat, then that's pretty precise in my mind. So a lot of ways to think about this and a lot of means of sophistication maybe in the future. When Pix was expensive, I can remember back, maybe it was almost a dollar an ounce. Close, yes. We started doing some work with a wick. So the person could set the wick at the heights, and usually it was on a nitrogen rig or a cultivator, post-direct rig, hooded sprayer. And that really worked well in helping even out some of our fields. We don't have near as many people using that now that picks it so cheap. Because we found with that wick, you could do more with less. So it was certainly saving them some money also. I know some consultants and growers here in Mississippi that I guess it actually is a little more high tech using imagery and making prescription maps. And to y'all's point about the cost, variable rate and picks isn't really going to save you a lot of money. But if your application efficiency improves so much by not hammering the small cotton and putting it on the big. And then if you piggybacking it with an insecticide, you could be saving some money because, you know, the plant bugs are going to be in the lush cotton that's getting the most picks too. So, you know, I could see some value there, maybe just doing a better job with your application. Good points. Some have suggested that timing is more critical than rate. Anybody have a response to that? Anybody want to wade into that? That's what our research has shown is that timing and getting on it early, you can't play catch up. You're trying to guide that cotton into the height you want it to and you can't make it back up. You've got to start thinking about where do I want that cotton at early bloom? We tell our growers, you know, 20 to 24 inches, you know, how tall do you want that plant at the end of the season? 36, 40, 44 inches. Try to reduce bowl rot. The other thing that we see, I was lucky enough to have a pitch test in a hurricane. And pitch can have a big effect on how much the cotton lays down and wraps up, too. In other words, larger plants whip more around and you have more losses. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, whip more around and more tangled, harder to harvest. I would agree with Keith on that. I mean, a couple of years ago, I did some stuff out here and looked at multiple rates at three different times. And really, the pinhead square type applications are going to hold it a little bit better. But I mean, once you get to first bloom, really, your rate, once you get past, in my opinion, 16 ounces, is not, you know, going to do any more for you. So I did some looking at 16 versus 24. And really at the end of the season, it wound up at the same height. So, and it was a single application at first bloom. In my opinion, in those type situations, I don't think you're getting more out of 24 than you are out of 16. Anybody else want to talk about rate and timing or timing being more critical than rate? I would just say, Steve, you know, from my perspective here, as I mentioned earlier, is, you know, making sure that the timing is during non-stressed events as much as possible, particularly irrigation stress, moisture stress, and putting it on. Our research has shown you get better uptake, you get better control, and you have less issues with shutting the plant down when you're not spraying under stress conditions. You know, that surprises me a little bit because I just assumed you never really stressed other than temperature stress. That's interesting. I will throw in a side pun. Years ago, I was dealing with a farmer in South Georgia who really is a good farmer, grows vegetables, and he also grows cotton, and he grows the cotton like he grows vegetables. And we were looking at a particular growth pattern, and we said, 
Well, maybe it was under stress. And the farmer looked and he said, this cotton ain't never stressed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's that's a really good point, Stephen. And you're right. I mean, if they're irrigating like they should, you're right. It's not going to get stressed. But, you know, sometimes with water shortages that we're dealing with in Arizona, they're stretching out these irrigation intervals a little bit more than what they typically have traditionally. And you get, you know, areas of the field where you have sand pockets that are stressed ahead of time. But we do see more stressed cotton than we used to, for sure. If we considered the two boundaries, on the one hand, being too aggressive in shutting down the plant or potentially limiting growth and node production and so forth, or the other ditch, if we might call it that, being too conservative and, oh, man, our growth gets away from us. In your environment, which is more serious, which is more punishing in your growing system? Are you concerned about one more than the other, or is it dependent upon years? So, Keith, tackle that if you would. You know, we've done a lot of pitch studies over the years. And what I've noticed, you know, you've got a protocol and you go out there and you put out the treatments a lot of times, whether it's dry or wet or what. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a study. And what I've seen is that sort of amazed me is making one mistake doesn't hurt you at all. Even growers think they've hurt their cotton, you know, because it didn't lap quite as good. But when they pick it, it's about the same as where you didn't pick it. So making one mistake, I've never seen a yield response. Now, that may be very different in other places. Making two mistakes, yeah. One of the mistakes may be being too late, too much picks. It's dry, you know, a lot of different type of mistakes you can make. But making one doesn't seem to hurt us. Great comment. How about it, Cam? So I think that depending on planting date, we could have both. We could hurt ourselves by being too aggressive on our early crop, in my opinion. And I think we can hurt ourselves by being too passive on our late crop. And that's something that I'm looking at this year because the last two years, I've gotten some very interesting data on yield in response to plant heights and multiple varieties across the state, but that's been in ideal planting times. And so I've done some early this year, really early some in like the ideal planting time and then some in what I would consider late. Just trying to gather where we get the most, I guess, bang for our buck out of picks. And really, in my opinion, we should be more aggressive on our late crop. And then on our early crop, maybe we should be a little more reactive. You know, everybody's talked about trying to be a little proactive, but I think that on some of our early crop, we could potentially penalize ourselves by being too aggressive. Ryan? That's true here, too. You could be a little too aggressive on earlier planting cotton. I mean, automatically, our plant heights are usually naturally a little lower than our later cotton. So, you know, you could hit that aggressive boundary quicker on the early cotton. And then on the late cotton, you typically need to be a little more aggressive with it. With that being said, if you were to have made a mistake, then you start running the gamble of what your environment is going to give you that year and what other problem you might have. So some years you might come out okay, and some years you might not. If you made your late crop a little later, you know, by being too passive, then I could see that being a problem. You could have a great crop going into late September, early October, and then, you know, the weather turn on you. So it could go either way. But I would say it's just looking at your planting date and then trying to manage that hard, try not to make any mistakes. Easier said than done. And then looking at the factors that we mentioned too, you know, internodal distances. All right, Randy, give us a Western perspective. 
I mean, I would echo what Camp just said and also what Brian was saying with early versus late planted cotton. You know, really with your early planted cotton, I think the most damage could be done by being too aggressive. Late planted cotton, if you're too passive, you could really run into a train wreck. I think overall, to err on the side of being too passive can result in more issues with defoliation, terminating crop in the low desert. It's just going to want to keep on growing. It's a perennial. I mean, that's what it wants to do. And so making a mistake on that end, I think, is going to cost a grower more in the long run, just trying to get the crop out of the field, get it defoliated, terminated, and out. All right, moving on to another subject. Over the last 20 years, it has become common to use a late-season cutout application, and many of the labels now discuss that. I've actually gotten a nasty letter from a company because I wasn't particularly keen on it, but Two questions related to this. Do you have research on the late season applications in terms of yield response? And then also, how do you actually even define cutout? So Keith, we'll start with you and again, move from there to the West. Okay, so cutout for us on dryland cotton is sort of hard to define, but on cotton that's had a reasonable amount of moisture, we define it as four nodes above white bloom. And we have done some studies. In fact, Guy Collins, that was part of his thesis, was looking at cutout applications. And we actually went out and collected all the regrowth leaves, dried them, weighed them, did all that, did yield, and we saw no benefit to these cutout applications. I don't doubt that that might be different in Arizona, but that's what we've seen. Camp? I hadn't done any research myself, but I do think that Guy kind of kept doing that research while he was in Georgia. I think that's in the Journal of Cotton Science. We really saw no benefit to cutout applications around here. And we define cutout in Georgia as three nodes above white flower. That's kind of what I go by. So I have not seen a situation where cutout application has, you know, provided great yield benefits or anything like that. Because really, by the time we get to three nodes above white flower, you're done, right? How about it, Brian? I'm not aware of any research we've done with the cutout application, but we have looked at, you know, the passive and aggressive and the aggressive having more applications. But we call Note Above White Flower 5 cutout here. And then our insecticide termination threshold is Note Above White Flower 5 plus 350 DD60s, which is going to put you, depending on variety, the two to three node range where you're going to quit going through that field anyway. So I don't see how it could really benefit you unless you had a calamity, like if you were in a drought and then all of a sudden you started getting rain in August and you're just trying to stop the plant, you know, from growing anymore. But I'm not aware of how it could be beneficial to you. All right, Randy. I would agree with all of that. And I would say probably in 90 plus percent of our acreage across the state, that's the case. And we've done work looking at that. The cutout application really doesn't provide you a lot. But I will say in these double crop situations, and this is in the low desert, you know, where they're accumulating tremendous number of heat units and that crop is just wanting to continue. Those late season, and when I say cut out, you know, we're talking five nodes above white flower, maybe even a little bit before that, maybe even six, they'll come in with a full rate. And I've seen fields in that production scenario where they have not done that. And definitely they have more difficult defoliation. They have a more difficult time shutting the crop down and getting it prepped for harvest. So under those circumstances, those specific circumstances, I think it's warranted. 
And we've got growers that have done them on thousands of acres and proven it to work pretty well. We haven't necessarily done any research looking at double cropping and those applications, but empirical evidence on grower fields over many, many acres has shown that it's effective. Maybe I shouldn't have let Randy go last to have the last word. So <laughs> I will say, you know, I think the bulk of the research does say, hey, there's no yield benefit. I think practically in the field, the farmer mentality, particularly the highly managed irrigated acre, there's a lot of affinity for doing something, turning that cotton darker green, making it level, making it look pretty. Hey, I've done something. I've managed the crop. Maybe in the big picture, it's a little easier to harvest. I guess the big point to be made is in most acres, it is not improving yield, but it may be a practical benefit that we don't always measure in small plot research. So I think y'all's response on research is why I got criticized by a chemical company because I said, hey, it doesn't help us. But farmer use had sort of wham past us in that regard. You know, one thing that comes to mind for me kind of back to this is that I've walked fields with growers before and, you know, they get a whip in the top, right? Like it's cut out and then regrown and there's nothing valuable in the top of that plant. And I think a lot of times guys around here will put out a cutout application to try to prevent that just because, number one, it doesn't look good. But number two, it's using resources that is not going to anything. You know, that's frustrating. And I understand that part of it as well. So we're kind of contradicting ourselves there. <laughs> I think the plant's going to allocate what the bowls need. And whatever is producing that whip is probably extra, it appears it does. But again, farmers like that dark green color, and so it <laughs> proceeds. But, all right, moving on to another subject, and this one will be interesting. After the early years of picks, several companies, including BASF, sought to improve the product probably to maintain patent position and so forth with different additives, different formulation, different salts, even hormone products, all with the goal of developing a new and improved version of Mepiquad or PGR. These products have been widely investigated. In fact, I used to look back on probably not so maybe in the last five years, but the previous 35, there was certainly no more research done on any other thing than PICS applications and PGR management in cotton. But anyway, What's your take on the alternative Mepiquot products? Are they superior or are they simply Mepiquot in a little different form or fashion? And so, Keith, we'll start with you. Well, the ones we've tested, if you base it on active ingredient, we've seen no difference. Yeah. Same thing. One potential benefit I think that people look at with some of these other formulations is especially the rain-free period. And a lot of the different salts or added hormones or whatever is shorter than the regular mepquat chloride, 4.2% product on the label. The mepquat chloride standard product is about eight hour rain-free period and then four hours if you include some sort of adjuvant in there is what the label says. But some of these other products advertise a two hour rain-free period or a one hour with an adjuvant or something like that. And so I think that that's why some of those are attractive to growers in different situations. Of course, you might pay for that. But again, I can understand why it's attractive. But at the end of the day, it's not going to do anything different. Like Keith said, it's going to keep the plant short and, you know, all these other benefits that we've talked about. Let me interrupt the discussion here and ask you, Camp, about your work on rain fastness with these type products. What have you seen there? 
Yeah. So in 2021, it was very similar to the year that we're having right now. It rained every day, it seemed like in June and even through early July. And so I got a lot of questions on the rain-free period on picks. And, you know, the label says eight hours, but there wasn't a whole lot of field research on it. There had been some greenhouse work done and uptake and things like that. And so I put a field trial in looking at different rain-free periods of zero, two, four, and eight hours, and then different tank mixtures, different application rates of picks. We use non-ionic surfactant and crop oil because those are probably the two most common additives that people in Georgia are going to have at the shop. And really, we didn't see any benefit to adding a non-ionic surfactant or crop oil in enhancing the rain-free period. And really, I'd feel comfortable if we got about four hours worth of dry time, even though the label does say eight hours. Okay, back to the subject about souped-up Bepiquot products. Brian, what does the research show there? Of the available labeled products, we haven't seen any differences when they were used appropriately. You know, just echo what they're saying. Randy? I don't know that I have anything different to add. You know, it's been quite a few years since I have personally done a whole lot of formulation-type work with PGRs. And I've slept quite a few nights since then. (laughs) You know, I know that when we were doing those evaluations actively, we saw very little difference in height control. They were all effective in maintaining, you know, vegetative reproductive balance. And, you know, to be honest with you, in the 90s and the early 2000s, when a lot of this work was being done, I mean, I don't know how many site years of data we had with PGRs, you know, and about 80% of the time, we never saw any yield response whatsoever. 10%, you know, we'd see some positive yield increases and about 10%, we'd see negative yield responses. But consistently, we were able to maintain growth and control growth. So, you know, I think that's what the tool is for. We really haven't seen a whole lot of benefit from any of the other formulations in our work. And that brings up the issue of the product, the PGR stance, which sometime around 2006, Bayer introduced it as sort of a different PGR, which includes mepiquat plus a cycloanalyte, which is an auxin synthesis and transport inhibitor. And the common uses of stance, at least on the label, are two to four ounces. It's vastly different from most of our other mepiquat products. So how do you see stance from your research and then how do producers integrate stance into their management programs? Keith, we'll start again with you. You can use stance at lower rates, but, you know, if you look at it from active ingredients, it's a higher active ingredient. So really, if you compare apples to apples as far as active ingredient, we don't see a lot of difference. Do you see any more, I'll use the term forgiveness, and that is, you know, on the ditch of being too aggressive and shutting down the plant, is stance any more forgiving and helps you keep out of that ditch? What do you think on that? We haven't noticed that. There may be something to it, but we didn't notice that. Camp? I hadn't done a lot of research on stance, but I do know there are some unique things that growers in Georgia do with it. And some people recommend, you know, if your crop is real up and down, like they recommend stance and maybe a lower rate of a standard mepiquat chloride product mixed together. In a replant situation, that's something I hear of pretty common, you know, different things like that. You know, I hadn't seen any of that personally. I hadn't done any work on it, so I can't say whether it works or not. But the growers that have done it like it. You know, that's all I have to say on that issue. And it is a premium price product. So you got to 
hopefully realize some kind of benefit to implementing it or integrating it in the system. So how about in the Delta, Brian? I agree with Keith. I mean, you're looking at apples for apples about the same. If the lower use rate fits your system better, but, you know, then again, with the price point, Stance does go out in Mississippi, and I know some people who use it, but most of our acres is standard mepiquot. All right, Randy, how about in the West? I think the vast majority of the mepiquot that goes out is not stance. You know, it's just generic or, you know, just normal mepiquot chloride. But we did do some work with stance in the early years after it was released. And again, you know, you are lower use rates with that product, as has been said, but I can't say that we really saw any significant benefit in terms of, like you're talking about, forgiveness, quote unquote, you know, with maybe being too hard on the crop. Don't recall that we saw anything related to that. That's an interesting discussion. And you'll see this with some of the other Mepiquot products as well. There's sort of a mentality that develops around them, and then you get some allegiance to this particular product or that one, and you have a use pattern, and you think, well, hey, I'm doing better. I'm aiding and I'm more fine-tuning my management. They develop kind of a reputation, and sometimes our research supports, and sometimes it does not. So it's an interesting whole area of how we think about this whole aspect of PGR management. All right, in conclusion, if you had one key point to make to your producers about how to use picks in cotton, give us that one key point if you can come up with a single one. So, Keith, we'll start again with you. I think timeliness. You know, you just can't wait. You're trying to control future growth, not shrink the cotton. Camp. Look at your crop before you make a decision. You know, get out there, kind of see what your fruit retention is. You know, a couple of years ago, I rode the picker with a grower and he said, man, I couldn't control this crop. Like, I don't know what's going on. And to me, you know, it's kind of hard to do a postmortem on something like this, but it looked like plant bugs had got after it a little bit. And so that was something that kind of contributed to not being able to control that crop, you know. But then last year, he stayed right around, I believe it was 32 ounces total for the season two applications of 16 ounces, his crop was beautiful, averaged 1,300 pounds. You know, the thing that I would say is definitely get out and look at your crop before you make a decision on what you're going to do PGR-wise. And probably I'd add to that, which I know you're saying is on a field-to-field basis if you can make that adjustment. Yep. How about it, Brian, in the Mississippi Delta? Yeah, I'm going to say know your variety growth habit and be timely and look at the variety and the internode distance between four and five three inches. All right, Randy in the far west. Well, that's a lot of wisdom right there in those three recommendations. <laughs> I'm just going to say, yeah, I agree. Again, feedback, feedback, feedback. Look at the crop, look what it's doing, and make your decisions based on what's happening in the field. That would be my advice. All right. Any other comments anybody wants to make? Now, Steve, I was thinking a little bit more about that stance, and I think you could probably make a case that two ounces of stance might be more forgiving than a given rate of regular mepiquot, maybe eight, ten ounces. But if it's more forgiving, it's also probably not controlling height as much as you might need. So that's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Anybody else? I think they need to resurrect the pick stick. You all remember the pick stick, right? <laughs> yeah. I walked a field with a county agent two years ago who had one still. Really? And he whipped that thing out and he was like, all right, let's stick it up there and look at it. And I was like, man, what is that? You know, I was picking at him. But yeah, I mean, there's still people out there that have them and use them. Yeah, but that pick sticks didn't have a zero on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're like the Rosetta Stone of pick management. <laughs> I've got my fingers calibrated like Randy said. Yeah, there you go. Oh, uh-huh. that's right. I will say when I was with the seed company, a new guy joined our group and he came from a corn and soybean background and he wanted an exact prescription. And I looked at him and said, there is no exact prescription. And that was like probably six or eight years ago. And then a couple of years ago, I heard him speak. He's still with the company. I heard him speak at a meeting in Arkansas and he made a very clear point that there is no prescription exact. So we learned together. Uh, thanks for joining us for this session of the Cotton Specialist Corner podcast. We appreciate Cotton Incorporated and their sponsorship of this program and their promotion of this effort. And I do appreciate the insights of my colleagues, Keith Edmiston, Camp Han, Brian Paralisi, and Randy Norton. Thanks, guys. <laughs>